do you love Jesus? I love Jesus with all of my heart. And what is so amazing is that's one of the precious parts of this amazing area that we are called to. We talk a lot of times about the negative aspects of the Delta, the poverty and the mediocrity and the ignorance and just the way things are just slipshod on this side of the river sometimes. And I just want you to know there's some amazing things, the food, the culture, the music, the praise, the, the love that we feel. Does anybody else besides me feel the love of God within this room? I want to give you a real quick 60-second review. Do you believe I can do it? Yes. Here we go. Started our Prodigal God series last Sunday. We read the 15th chapter of the book of Luke. Luke gives us three very important parables, and every one of those parables are all about what? All about, it starts with an L. Everybody say lostness. You remember that movie called Raiders of the What Ark? Lost Ark. So they were looking for something to find it. We learned, first of all, that all of those three parables, there was a lost sheep, there was a lost coin, and there were two lost sons. Everybody say, two lost sons. Next, I want to remind you that the point of each one of those is that heaven rejoices every time something that has been lost is found and recovered. Say that with me. Heaven rejoices every time. Excuse me. Every time something that is lost is found. Say that. Every time something that is lost is found. The next thing that's so important that I think we've got to grapple with is our current cultural understanding of what this word prodigal means. Prodigal does not mean wayward. Prodigal means extravagant. It means, it means someone who has been a spendthrift. They have just gone way over the top in terms of giving something or spending something. The very, very negative side of this word prodigal literally means waster. And when we interpret this, and we've always grown up thinking there's only one prodigal, what we fail to realize is there are actually two wasters in this story. There's a waster, there's a prodigal who stayed, and there's a prodigal who strayed. Say that with me. There's a prodigal who stayed, and there's a prodigal who strayed. We always emphasize the younger son, and we call him the prodigal. And actually, we've got two prodigals because we've got one who went out and wasted it in the world in self-discovery and long-term living on prostitutes and drugs and sex and rock and roll and all of those things. But yet we've got another son who wasted the opportunity to have a relationship with the father. He was there in church every Sunday on the second pew, piano side, with a nice painted-on Southern churchianity, Southern freeze-dried smiley face painted on, not even realizing that he didn't even have a relationship that was real with the Father. This is all about folk in the world and about folk in the church. And how many of you know God wants to save you, whether he saves you from the gutter or whether he saves you from the church pew? All right? So we've, we've talked about lostness. We've talked about heaven rejoicing over what was lost that the parable of the prodigal is not about one son, but it's about two sons. And even more than that, prodigal does not mean wayward. Prodigal means extravagant. And the last thing that we preached last Sunday was that God was the biggest prodigal in the story because God has given to us his extravagant love. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 
not imputing men's trespasses unto them. Not counting men's sins unto them. He washed it away. All of the penalty and the punishment that was due me and my sin and everything that I should justly receive was poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago because he was the Lamb of God, the perfect one, the sacrifice. It was the just suffering for the unjust. It was the godly for the ungodly. He took my place. and He took every accusation of the law out of the way. That is the gospel of God right there. That is the bottom line. We recognize this morning as we jump into this, and I'm so excited, we've got uh, right out of 100 people. That was my prayer goal for for this particular semester with our life groups. Several semesters ago we had 30, the next one we had 40, the last one we had 70. This time I prayed, I said, Lord, I want 100 people involved in life groups because I want real discipleship going on this church. As of last Sunday morning, we had 91 people signed up for life groups. So I'm, I'm counting on some of you. I believe there's my other nine that's here today. I want to tell you, we got some amazing life groups, some great people have opened their homes, beautiful homes. Amazing hospitality, great fellowship, wonderful, uniting, agreeing prayer where you can get in there and you can do life with some of these folks and they'll get down in the trenches with you and stand with you in faith and trust God with you and you'll come out on the other side of this eight weeks being a changed person if you will just step out in faith and do it. I have two passages of scripture this morning. Both of them are in Luke 15. The first one is this very, very beginning passage here. It says in Luke 15, 1 and 2, Now the tax collectors and sinners. Everybody say tax collectors and sinners. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. Who is him? This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. He's hanging around with the wrong crowd. All the religious folk are upset because they know that Jesus is the hottest thing going right now. He's been written up in People Magazine, Israeli edition. <laughs> He's come to town and he set up his tent. The Jesus Christ Evangelistic Association is there. And man, they, they, all the churches are getting involved and they're all coming out to see what's going on. He threw this amazing party, this incredible fish and chips day one day. And 20,000 people got fed from a little boy's lunch. So, I mean, there's been some crazy stuff happening. A guy who couldn't stretch out his hand. On a Sabbath day, Jesus said, stretch it out. And the Pharisees are losing their mind because they're all tied up in regulations and commandments and laws and stuff that really is not even what it's about. And Jesus is all about getting people set free. How many of you want to be free this morning? Jesus came so you could be free. Whom the Son sets free, the Bible says, is free indeed. Everybody say free indeed. Now grab this. We want to recognize this morning, as we say this, this is the first slide. Everybody say, two kinds of people. That's why I asked Greg to sing, people, people, today. He says it twice, people, people. I dare you to turn it over right now and do it just like that. Go, people, people. I've got one crowd over here. What are they? Say it to me one more time. The what? Over here you got another kind of people. What are they? Pharisees and teachers of the law. Everywhere you have the ministry of Jesus present, sinners are coming to receive ministry, and Pharisees are complaining about how Jesus is doing Everywhere you go, it's not unlike today, 2,000 years later, where the ministry of Jesus is present, sinners are getting saved and coming to Jesus and getting their burdens laid down at the foot of the cross. Jesus is breaking their bondages and their addictions and all 
everybody's in every group. You've got a few Pharisees that are grumbling about how he's doing it. I want you to recognize this morning that as we look at this, we've got a story. That story, Jesus basically sets these folks up because he's got two different kinds of people. Tax collectors and sinners. Pharisees and teachers of the law. And so he grabs their attention by saying, look, God is after redeeming what's lost. He wants to go after every lost sheep. He will even walk away from the 99 and go down into the ravine of sin, into the ravine of addiction, into the, into the ravine of a broken home and a broken heart, into the ravine, into the trench of dysfunctionality in a family. He will get down underneath and pick up that little sheep and he will bring it back to the fold. And all of heaven is rejoicing and the choir is singing and shouting of heaven at the restoration of one lost sheep. And that sounds great. Tax collectors and sinners love it. Even the Pharisees are okay with it at this point. Man, that's good. Praise God. Go get your sheep, man. <laughs> Little lady. Don't leave the ladies out. Jesus says there's a little woman with a lost coin. She's lost the coin because she was careless with it. And I just want to say something to you this morning that, you know, it's just, it's real easy to find uh, that in your life it, that, that somebody has been careless with you. They have neglected you and maybe you were dropped or, or, or you were left out or you were rejected. You weren't accepted. And, and, and because of somebody else's carelessness, maybe you were like that lost coin and it got dropped in the corner. But I want to tell you something this morning. God is not giving up and he's sweeping the house and he's turning on all the lights and he's looking around and he's going to find the lost coin that's invested in your heart and soul. Little lost sheep don't intend to get lost. They just sit out one day and they're eating and they're grazing and head down and they look up and before they know it, they're separated from the rest of the flock. But Jesus goes after the lost sheep. And everybody's fine with it so far. I mean, nobody is, you know, the, the Pharisees and even the sinners, everybody together is basically giving Jesus a praise. Oh, hallelujah, Hosanna. But then Jesus comes in for the kill. His third parable is the one where he really separate, he separates. He separates his sheep from the birds. The rest of his message is coming from South Texas. He separates the sheep from the goats. And he says, there was a man who had two sons. And you know the parable. I'm not going to take time to read it this morning for time's sake because we read the whole thing last Sunday. You know the story. There's a younger son who basically go to his, goes to his father and he says, give me my inheritance. Now, in, in those days, we recognize that, that when an inheritance was given, it basically involved the sale of some property. So this took a little bit of time. So all that takes place. Probably some land is parceled off and it's sold. And the father, basically with a broken heart, because when you are looking at your father in that particular generation in which these two sons lived, and they said, give me my inheritance, he's basically saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because you get your inheritance when what? And Dad dies. So the son is basically just kicking dirt in Dad's face, and he's saying, you know, I wish you were dead. Just give me my inheritance. Let me get out of here. I'm, I, was, I was born for bigger and better things than this. I got to get out of this place. I can't stay in this little podunk hometown in which I live in, but I know for a, without a shadow of a doubt that I'm called to something bigger. So the dad with a broken heart sells a piece of property and gives it to his son. The son heads out. You know the rest of the story. He gets out there and wild and wants and living, and man, he's befriending the hoes and the pimps and everybody else. He's having himself a good time. He is living it up. And if that offended you this morning, you're who I'm after. 
And how many of you know Jesus can take a hoe and he can make her holy? Jesus can take a crazy young man who's out there just sowing his wild oats, and when he comes to himself after he's spent everything that he's got, he's wasted it. He's prodigalized his whole life. He's extravagantly wasted everything that he's got, and he's down in the middle of the pig trough wanting to eat the pods that he's feeding the pigs, and nobody's giving him anything to eat. Something happens in that moment of brokenness because he says, I can go back to my own daddy's house, and my, the servants that, that served my father were fed better than this if I'll just... Turn my heart and change my heart. And I can go back and I can get up out of this situation that I'm in. I will arise and I will go to my father. And I will say to my father, I've sinned against heaven. And I've sinned against you. And I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me. What did he say the first time when he left? Give me. The place of brokenness that God wants to bring every one of us to is where we no longer rattle our tin beggar cup and say, give me, 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 Jesus, one more, give me, give me, give me, one more, give me, answer one prayer, more, one more. I don't know where that came from. I'm telling you, you have no idea what I'm filtering that's running across here. It is a parade. That'll close us the end, anyway. Okay. Anybody else in the room know what I'm talking about? <laughs> okay, come back. Zero in. <laughs> so anyway, he, he basically comes to himself and he says, I will arise and go to my father's house. And he no longer says, give me, but he says, make me like one of your servants. And he gets up and he goes and he starts to take the trek back from the far distant country. And there's something so powerful in this parable because it says the father saw him while he was yet a long way off. There are people sitting here in the service that are just a few feet from me, but you're a long way off from the Father. But you know what? He has his eye on you. And do you know he's never forgotten about you? And do you know he's already forgiven you before you actually take the first step to come back into a place of communion and restoration with him? And I love it because it says the father saw him afar off and he ran to him. Oh my, it's not just the son taking the initiative to take the step to go back home. But it's about the fact that there's a father standing there on the porch looking out over the land and he sees his son. And while he's still a great way off and he runs to him. I'm telling you this morning, if you're in a situation that is bigger than you are and you can't fix it, God has fixed a fix to fix you to bring you to a place of brokenness where you will get up and take the first step and when you start walking back to him he will run to you i love it the bible says he ran to him and the king james is the best here it says he fell on his neck always speaks of the will the father fell on his neck and you can see a son who is just overwhelmed at the acceptance and the love of a father. And the father fell on his neck and says he, he kissed him. And if you read it in the Greek, it's he kissed and kissed and kissed and kissed. And it was the kiss of restoration. There was something about not just, just feeling the breath of the acceptance of the father on his neck, but he felt the lips of his father on his cheek. And, and he knew that there was something of restoration that had been restored to him, even before he actually got his whole planned speech out of his mouth. You know the rest of the story. 
He basically says, come on, servants, give me a new robe, put a new ring on his finger, give him some new sandals, some new shoes, go kill the fatted calf, throw a party, go get the kings of the Delta to play at this party. People, people. They're having a good time, man. Food is awesome. Older brother comes in from outside of the field, and he doesn't discern what he hears. What's going on? What's all this commotion? What's this confusion all about? The older brother as you know the story, he said, what's happening? And one of the other hired servants said, your brother was lost and now he's found. And your father's rejoicing because he's been brought back. He is alive. He was dead. The father hears that the older son won't come in to have fellowship with the younger son and the rest of the party. And so the father runs out to the older son and he begs him. He pleads with him. Will you please? Come on. This is the right thing to do. This is the righteous thing to do, he says. The older brother was arguing about whether or not something was appropriate or whether it was fitting because he was standing in a place of judgmentalism. He was looking down his nose. This is the frightening thing because Jesus was basically saying the younger brother, this is the next point this morning, there are two lost sons and there's a younger brother who is representing the tax collectors and the sinners. These folks are messed up and basically they know it. There, there is a little bit of emotional integrity with these folks because they know they're out doing what they shouldn't do. They're, they're in a situation where they're practicing their life in such a way that is on a destructive path. And, and, and you know, it's amazing how God has gifted every one of us with this thing called a conscience. You don't have to be able to quote the Ten Commandments to know that what's the difference in right and wrong. There's something down the inside of you that you were born with. It basically says... It's wrong when you hurt somebody else or you take something that does not belong to you or you neglect or reject or hurt somebody else. You have anger and you kill someone. <coughs> we all know there's something wrong with that even if we can't quote. Pardon me. <coughs> somebody grab me some water. Right there. Thank you so much. Give me 10 seconds to clear this throat. Yeah, I, mean, I just want to say this to you this morning. The younger brother represents the tax collectors and the sinners. The older brother represents the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. As I move down through this message, this morning I want you to realize that Jesus' purpose, it's in your notes. Tim Keller says this in this amazing book called The Prodigal God. He said, Jesus' purpose is not to warm our hearts, but it's to shatter our categories. Read that out loud with me, please. Jesus' purpose is not to warm our hearts, but it's to shatter our categories. I just want to ask you a real quick question. Have you ever noticed the amazing number of accounts in the Gospels as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And you, you, you read of these circumstances where you are always having different groups of people, uh, a religious person, a Pharisee, a scribe, a teacher of the law, and they're pitted against somebody who's an outcast, a sexual outcast in John chapter 8. A woman who was caught in the act of adultery. A political outcast. Uh, an ethnic outcast in John 4. A Samaritan woman. Who basically his own disciples said to Jesus, What's up with this? You, you, why are we even going through Samaria? We're, we're Jews. We're better than those folks. Those are half-breed dogs. Have you ever realized that every time you see this pitting of religiosity against brokenness, then it's always the religious person that is rejecting Jesus and it's the person who is fully aware of their sinfulness that is bowing at his feet and reaching to receive ministry and transformation and life change from him. 
Did you hear what I just said? Every time you see in the, in the scriptures where there's an outcast and there's a very religious person, you always see the outcast receiving from Jesus and the, the, the religious person is accusing that individual and is accusing Jesus because of having anything to do with him. Have you ever noticed how it seems sometimes that in the Gospels that Jesus almost seems schizophrenic with the way he deals with people? Somebody comes up to him and, and he basically just pours on love and mercy. Somebody else comes up to him and asks a simple question and he just pounds them with the law. Has anybody else seen that in the Word besides me? <coughs> Let me just give you an example. Think about how Jesus answered what was referred to as the rich young ruler. This guy had been on the cover of Fortune magazine. He was basically the Donald Trump of Palestine. He's rich. He's young. He's good looking. Got a cover on GQ. I mean, he's just got it all together. I mean, every local pastor would have made this guy head of the deacon board. Jesus basically isn't playing. He's not kidding. He's not playing around. He says, the young guy says, you know, listen, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, he basically says, I've kept the commandments. I've honored my father and mother. I haven't killed anybody. And he lists all the things that he's done right. And Jesus says to him, go and take all you have and sell it and give it to the poor. And the Bible says the rich young ruler went away angry. What's that angry? He was so wealthy. And what Jesus was doing was he was taking the law that the rich young ruler thought he was basically having himself going, hey, I got this act together, I'm doing pretty good here. Jesus takes that very law to one who is hard, and he uses it and tightens the screws down, and he's showing him, look, you've got an idol, buddy. It's your money. And you really want to come to the kingdom? Then you don't have to lay that stuff down. You're going to have to get rid of all your idols, because the Father will have no other gods before his face. The first commandment. So why is it that Jesus is so hard on him, but then when some men drag a, a torn, bloodied, barely covered up, her nakedness is showing as she's being dragged to the streets in John 8 with a poor woman who's caught in the midst of adultery, and there's, there, there are Pharisees out there with a bag of rocks standing around, ready to do what the word of the Lord says, what the law of God says in the book of Deuteronomy, and that's to stone the adulterous woman. And Jesus does something absolutely outlandish and outrageous. And he stoops down and he writes into the sand with the scripture says with his finger. And I believe what he did was he wrote the commandment that that crowd, each one of them individually, had broken. Huge rabbit trail I'm not going to go down. I've always wondered why didn't they bring the dude. You know, she didn't do that act of adultery by herself. Leave it alone. Because all the men, it was, it was their buddy. That's why they didn't bring him. They want to kill her. So Jesus reaches to a sexual outcast who's broken. He basically looks at all the men out there with the bag of rocks. And he says, guys, if any of you have anywhere without sin, come on, pick up your rocks. Throw the first stone. And the scripture says one by one, they dropped their rocks and walked away. Mm, don't preach. I want to tell you this morning, I don't know what you're facing, what you're going through, what kind of an outcast you are because of an addiction or a past. I want to tell you, Jesus is standing before you and he said the same thing and your accusers have walked away because they ain't got nothing to say and you're standing there in the face, looking in the face of one who only has love and mercy for you because you're broken and you're ready to receive it and change. But if you're hard like the rich young ruler, thinking that you've got this act together, he's ready to apply another layer of the law to show you you've got to be broken because you can't do this thing by yourself. Jesus looked at the crowd and he said, now this is my translation. 
said, you folks are something else. He said, I'm telling you right now, the pimps and prostitutes and the drug-dealing, crackhead, house-owning idiots are going into the kingdom before you get in. He's talking to religious people. To those who think they have their acts together, he applies the impossible standards of the law to show them that they don't. Those who are bankrupt and know it, he immediately applies mercy. This morning, I just want to ask you where you are in heart check as we wrap this message up. My last point is this. It is far easier to reach and disciple younger brothers. Why do you think that is? Because younger brothers have already been out there and been completely and totally and entirely broken. They know they're bankrupt. They have nothing else that they can count on. They cannot depend upon their trust any longer. They've already spent all their trust. They've already wasted everything that they had. It's gone on riotous living, on, on, on prostitutes, and on, on, on any kind of flavor that you can name. Whatever your addiction is this morning, I want to tell you, Jesus Christ is bigger than in His love and His mercy accepts right where you are. He loves you enough to receive you just like you are, but He loves you too much to leave you like you are. People bring change into each of our lives. But you know what? The real point is, I'm going to tell you something. God's break is bringing younger brothers every Sunday. We're getting people saved. Sinners are coming to Jesus. I want to tell you why I'm so adamant in a godly sense. I'm stirred up in my heart in a prophetic sense because as a pastor, I truly believe with all of my heart that God is going to do something historical right from this place that 200 years from now when Christian history is written we will read about the congregation that stood in faithfulness in the midst of all of the poverty and the, the racism and all of the mediocrity and all of the sin and all of the immorality that exists in Crittenden County there were not, it was not just one church it wasn't just victory but it was churches who began to pray and seek the face of God and they grabbed hold of what the understanding of the real gospel is and they refused to let someone walk through the door and not leave without knowing that they were loved by Jesus no matter how deep in sin they had ever been in We've got to get this thing called the gospel. Gandhi said it this way. Mahatma Gandhi, the leader after the British control of India, led the people to freedom. He said, I'd be a Christian if it were not for the Christians. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. I'm going to be real honest with you this morning. In the South, in this whole thing, this spirit, this, this deep geist, this spirit of the age that pervades the South, we are under the buckle of the Bible Belt here in Memphis. There's a pervasive spirit of religiosity and Pharisaism, a holier-than-thou, looking down the noses in our churches and people who walk in who do not look like we do. People who do not act like we do. People who are not part of the same clubs that we are, that dress differently, that smell differently, that, that don't live in the neighborhood that we live in and, 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 and don't drive a car that looks as good as yours. I, I just want to tell you why we've made the changes that we've made the last year in victory. I got this letter, not a letter, I'm sorry, an email. I'm going to just indulge me. I know I'm a little bit over. We're about to baptize some folks. But I think God saved something to our hearts today. Hello, Brother Michael. My name is Carla. I'm not going to tell your last name. 
I have visited your church four times in the last two months while in West Memphis visiting my mom. I've never felt more comfortable and looked forward to going to a place of worship ever in my entire life. I have been so moved. Hang on. I have been so moved and excited about getting my life right since the first time I visited your church. I've had such a turmoil of a life and have spent the major part of it searching for my place in this world. I was diagnosed with breast cancer October of 2009 and fighting for my life snapped me into seeing things as they really are. That was her eating pods in a pig pen. And she said, I got to get up out of this. It snapped me into seeing things as they really are. And I took a long, hard look at myself and saw that the way I had been living obviously wasn't working for me. I beat the fight against breast cancer and have been in remission since June and stronger and better all the time. I'm thankful for my life and want to live the rest of my life the way I know that I should be and have a personal relationship with God. Now to get to the main reason that, uh, for this email. He says that, she says that I'm reaching out in hopes that you can help me find a place to uh, uh, help me with that. I live in, and I'm going to a town in Kentucky. I live in Kentucky and have gone to a couple of churches here, but they're not the place for me. I want a church with the same beliefs as what I found in Victory. I'm listening to you every week via podcast. But would love to be able to fellowship and be excited and feel the same spirit in the place of worship. I need that feeling that I felt at Victory. I have a hard time with the rejection I felt at the other churches I attended. I am a jeans and t-shirt kind of girl and I don't understand the rejection because of what I wear. someone to help me find this relationship and closeness to God that I so long for. If there's anyone anywhere you know that can help me with this search, I will be so thankful. Please feel the contact me. She gives me your phone number. Thank you for setting the fire inside of me and for all of the great people at Victory. I wish I could pick you up and move you here. Sincerely and hoping, Carl. Why? Why did it, two years ago I quit doing the whole preacher look in the suit and tie? Because I read a statistic that three-quarters of the men in America don't own a suit. Twenty-five percent of the men in America own a suit. And if we're going to make having a suit in church a requirement, then we've already eliminated 75 percent of the population to reach them to Jesus. I'm sorry, you have no idea the grumbling that I've heard because I'm on stage in a pair of jeans with a shirt untucked. I don't care what it takes. If folks are getting saved and lives are being transformed and they're being changed, come on, folks. I want people to know it's not about a dress show or a dress code. It's not about putting on a fashion show in victory. There's no runway here. All right. I got a little bit of Jeff Foxworthy in me this morning. Are you, are you okay with this? I mean, I'm trying my best to finish. Here we go. You might be a Pharisee if. <laughs> you see church is all about ministering to you and your personal needs. You might be a Pharisee. You don't really think you need grace. After all, you're doing pretty good at this Christian thing. Might be a Pharisee. You judge others by their actions, but are offended when people fail to judge you by your intentions. You might be a Pharisee. You don't really feel called to minister to those people. You sure?
sure wish old Jimbo and Sister Ernestine would have been here to hear this today, because God knows they sure do need to hear it. <laughs> you might be a Pharisee. You rush to judgment and meeting out punishment first without ever considering the possibility of mercy when you hear somebody else's failure. You're consumed with splinters and haven't dealt with your personal logs. You actually acknowledge that you have sinned, but you know it's nowhere near the folks that are sitting on the road with you. God will take care of those people. You just worry about ministering to me and my family and keep us happy. Pharisaism is a virus. It is contagious. The only way to treat it is to wash regularly with the water of the word and have a generous application of the grace of God daily. Amen. I, I'm not loaded for bear in anybody today. I'm telling you, I am a recovering elder brother. I have to get healed of an occasional bout of the virus of Pharisaism. Would you please hear my heart this morning? I have to check my heart and I have to go, God, I need your word. Lord, I don't understand the, the things that you're asking me to do to call me to be able to reach out to situations in this city that I don't feel qualified for. And I want to tell you when I when I start to look down and I get in the place of sort of looking in, in, in kind of a declension, de looking down, declining into something, I want to tell you this when God reminds me, dude, you need, you need some grace. You're not perfect. Heart of man is an idol factory. We are at a base nature religious. When I make this thing about anything other than the finished work of Jesus Christ, I am working my way back to you, God. Whether I've got a burning love inside or not, I'm working my way to God. It's Pharisee. God is going to shake the delta. It's my last sentence and I'm finished. God is going to shake the delta with the ministry of Victory Church. We will touch, I'm prophesying right now, says the Lord, we will touch the world from Crittenden County, but we've got to get this gospel thing right. biggest prodigal, the greatest prodigal in this story, because in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Bow your heads with me, please, this morning.